You are listening to the Baseball in the Burrows podcast, where myself, Tyler Smith, and Noah Broderick talk about baseball with a pretty bad microphone. Time to listen to a 20-second GarageBand clip to make the transition into the episode a little less awkward. Welcome back, everybody, to episode 31 of the Baseball and the Burrows podcast. It's hard to believe, if we're thinking back to July, that we would be in a situation where Noah and myself are officially wrapping up a season's worth of MLB coverage. I guess not technically a season's worth, but yesterday the World Series concluded in six games, and the Los Angeles Dodgers came out victorious, as I think both of us predicted at the beginning of the year. Um, you know, beginning of the actual season, I think we had different opinions, but uh, especially once... We got news of the 60-game season, the playoff format. Uh, Noah and myself, if you want to dig up the receipts, we both had the Dodgers winning. And that happened. Today's episode also marks the final episode of the first season of Baseball in the Burrows. I think the idea we have going forward is each season of the podcast, not that much is going to change. It's just going to be each season is going to represent one season of baseball. And today's our final episode. We're going to cover everything related to the World Series, the Dodgers, the Rays, and we're going to overview a little bit of free agency talk. Next week, we're going to have our free agency deep dive. We're going to start breaking down the numbers, likely destinations for you know the biggest names, um, the guys that are testing the waters in free agency be, uh, this winter. So without further ado, I want to introduce my co-host, the sick, the cold-infested Noah Broderick. How are you doing today, Doug? Not COVID. I promise it's not COVID. And I'm even saying. if it was, I already had it. I have the antibodies. So uh, we're safe right now. Everyone else is uh, staying away. Our other roommate, Timmy, decided to run away from Noah because he's afraid of him. But Is um, that why he's upstairs? No, he's studying. He's got two tests tomorrow. <laughs> gotcha, gotcha. Uh, yeah, now last week I had a long week. I had It was midterm week. So for anybody in college knows, midterm week is pretty stressful. So I was up pretty late most nights doing work, also dealing with some other stuff. Uh, so I was getting like four or five hours of sleep, you know, those last couple of nights. And then Sunday I just came down with this. Uh, but I'm good now. And luckily I had World Series baseball on to kind of give me a distraction during it. And uh, we just wrapped up a really good World Series. And uh, like Tyler said, really happy to be able to get through a full season of baseball coverage. That's something I think we really anticipated, especially having over a thousand listens and uh, a good audience, you know, getting steady plays on every episode and a good fan base. So we really appreciate you guys. And uh, it was a great season uh, considering the circumstances. I mean, we would have liked to have done a March to October and had a 162 game season and had a little bit more of a structure to it. But we kind of had to adapt on the fly, just like the baseball teams had to adapt on the fly and the world had to adapt on the fly. And uh, we did a good job with it, I think, and uh, really proud of everything we were able to do. And now we're just saying congrats to the Los Angeles Dodgers, despite uh, me not really believing in them and a lot of people kind of wondering if they'd be able to get the job done or not. They finally did get it done and they won their first World Series since 1988. Uh, it's the seventh in franchise history. And uh, just congrats to the Dodger fans. If we have any Dodger fans listening, uh, congratulations to you. I think it's a legitimate title, and uh, it was a great series, and they played great baseball, and they did everything that a big market team had to do. So. Yeah, so first of all, transitioning right into this World Series talk, Los Angeles Dodgers are your World Series champions, and me and Noah had this discussion plenty of times before the season started. Most likely, you know, it was most likely that this championship was going to be legitimate depending on which team got there. You know, if we had, let's say – um, Miami versus Oakland, something like that. And it was kind of, you know, something weird like that where crazy things were happening. Maybe wouldn't think of it as totally legitimate. But if you look at the way this season went, I mean, the Dodgers were most likely going to be there anyway. And Tampa was one of the front runners to represent the American League in the World Series. Obviously, you know, the Yankees and Twins, other teams up there. But you look at the season Tampa had, they rightfully deserved to be there. You saw the pitching that they did, uh, you know, the pitchers, the stable full of guys that throw 98 miles per hour. Uh, they deserve to be there, and it was a great series. The Dodgers deserve to win, and although it was a 60-game sprint, you got to realize that every other team is also dealing with something new like that. It's not like the Dodgers, just because they have the best roster in baseball, they're all of a sudden equipped to deal with the urgency of a 60-game season. And look, based on what's happened with the Dodgers, I think they've been, what, like three of the last four World Series, something like that, and they finally won. It was only a matter of time before it happened, especially with that talent. I think Dave Roberts answered a lot of questions. I think Clayton Kershaw answered a lot of questions. We're going to do a deep dive into that. Um, yeah, just looking at the numbers real quick, Dodgers win their seventh title, the first since 1988. Uh, having the notes, a huge year for Los Angeles sports. LeBron in his second year with the Lakers, he wins a championship. 
Um, you know, the stakes were always high for him, especially, you know, all the Kobe stuff going on. And then similarly, the Dodgers finally win owned by Magic Johnson. It kind of feels like it made sense. And another point I brought up about the World Series in general, regardless of the result, I think the baseball fans know this. And, you know, some more casual fans don't know this as much as that. When you watch postseason baseball, you're going to get these dramatic moments. I mean, you will in any sport, but I feel like there's something different with baseball. Just from, you know, you look at baseball more so than most sports, the, the manager, the coach has such a profound effect on what happens in a game. And we saw that with Kevin Cash last night. You know, these things are always going to happen, especially in baseball. And we're going to transition back to game four, I don't believe we talked about, where, um, of course, now I forget the guy's name when we're recording, uh, who the, the walk-off Brett hit. Phillips. Brett Phillips, right. So he has this blooper into you know shallow right center field chris taylor comes up to field the ball uh bounces off his glove he kicks it over to uh to like right field he picks it up throws home to max muncie um the tying run scores randy rosarena represents the winning run he comes around third he trips on his way home max muncie has him dead in his rights at home plate kind of throws a little bit to the right of austin smith or will smith if i'm not mistaken was it him or austin Barnes? Will, will it was will smith right will smith hits off his glove to the right randy trips Realizes that Will Smith drops the ball, scores, 8-7 ball game, Rays win. All of a sudden, it's a 2-2 series, and we're like, you know, the Braves got – I'm not going to say they got bailed out in the NLCS just because they came back against the Braves down 3-1, and we felt – you saw the reaction from Dave Roberts after that happens in game four, and you're just like, are the Dodgers really going to do this? They're up 2-1, chance to go up 3-1 with at least Kershaw and Buehler still having the potential to pitch, and all of a sudden it's 2-2. You feel like they lost all the momentum. You know, that craziness happens – that's one of those only in baseball moments. I remember uh, I came back from wherever I was. I, I missed the innings, like between the fifth and eighth inning, something like that. I come back in the ninth. I'm watching with all my buddies. And like, that was just one of those moments where I got up, I jumped and started screaming. Like it was like the one of the craziest things I've ever seen. I don't think people realize how crazy that game was. And I think that's just a testament to what World Series baseball does. I know a lot of people were drawing comparisons to the 2011 World Series, uh, the Cardinals and the Rangers, you know, David Freeze, all that stuff going on. But um Regardless of the outcome, what happened in game six, I think this World Series was awesome. I think we got really good baseball and a ton of good plot lines. Where do you stand on that? Yeah, I mean, game four, I, I wanted to do an instant reaction pod, but we had a lot going on Sunday right. with schoolwork and stuff, so we couldn't get that out for you guys. But uh, that was one of the craziest games I've ever seen. I think it, if I had like a Mount Rushmore of World Series games I've ever watched, I think that would be on there. Like that game, the 2017 game five with the Houston Astros and the Dodgers would be up there. Uh, last year, that game seven with the Nats and the Astros would be up there. That was in then obviously 2016 game seven with the Cubs and the Indians. Just in recent memory, those four games kind of stick out to me. It's just can't miss games. And uh, man, that was that was absolutely wild. It wasn't I mean, I coming down to Brett Phillips, like you kind of just knew something dramatic was going to happen. Just coming down to the last guy on the yeah. bench, like literally and like this guy hasn't played at all. He hasn't had an at bat. And I don't know if he had even had a postseason at bat. And uh, him coming up and being able to get that hit off Jansen, it was a two-strike cutter that, of course, kind of leaked over the middle of the plate. Um, and just watching that play transpire was – that's why we have a baseball podcast. That's why we become really big fans of the sport, why I want to work in the sport. Um, and it's, it's you know, it gave us everything that we wanted and more. And then game five, I think it showed a lot about the Dodgers' resiliency and mental toughness to be able to bounce back from that. Because, uh, like you, you mentioned, Dave Roberts' reaction after it happened, he kind of just threw his hands up in the air and was cursing. Yep. Yeah, like, and you see that, and you kind of just—I feel like you think we just blew our chance. Like we're, we could have gone up three-one, we could have had him dead to rights. Instead, we gave him life, and we gave him this dramatic win. They're going to tell their grandkids about, and uh, you know, this is going to be the turning point in the World Series, and this is kind of just what our franchise does year in year out. Uh, and they come out with a bang in Game Five. I think Seager hit a home run early. Uh, Mookie Betts was all over the place, and they played a really good game five. And then last night, uh, obviously a controversial decision that we'll get into more in depth uh, in a little bit, taking out Blake Snell. But they were down one nothing in the game. They looked like they couldn't get a hit. Uh, and then once the Rays went to the bullpen, uh, they really were just able to do what they had to do. And Mookie Betts put the uh, icing on the cake, and they wrapped up the World Series. Um, they did a great job, and I'm really happy that they were finally able to do it. Uh, this has been a long time coming, like we've said. They blew, you know, 2012 against the Cardinals or 2013 against the Cardinals, uh, 2015, 26, 2015 against the Mets, 2016 against the Cubs, uh, 2017 against the Astros. I mean, against the Red Sox. They've had just had uh, Nationals. They've lost so many of these heartbreaking series in the past. And after game four, I kind of thought that was like going to happen again. Uh, but they were just a different team this year. And um, I think the biggest reason for that, honestly, is Mookie Betts and 
I feel like just watching the Braves, those last three games of the Braves series, and then watching this series, you could see what having a true, true star does for a team in big games. Now, I'm not taking anything away from Seager. He played like a superstar this postseason. He had 328 with, you know, eight home runs in the playoffs, and he was the World Series MVP. And Bellinger's won an MVP. You know, they've got star power on the roster, but a cemented top three player, Mookie Betts, having him on your roster, uh, he was able to dig them out of some holes and make some great plays in the field and steal big bags, hit leadoff doubles, hit big home runs that, you know, provide insurance. Uh, he was just doing everything that you ask of a star player, and I think that's uh, that was the big thing for them this year that got them over the hump. Yeah, and, you know, as soon as Mookie not only was traded to L.A., obviously David Price was there. Keep in mind, they did this without David Price. This isn't to say that David Price has this huge track record of destroying teams in the postseason. Obviously, your Yankees know a thing or two about facing him, but when push comes to shove, that 2018 World Series, David Price was really big for the Red Sox, and a similar situation with him was with Kershaw, where, you know, David Price has been, you know, one of the best pitchers in, of our generation for a long time. You know, he's been around forever, been with several teams – and, you know, in these big moments in the postseason, you never really put it together. Don't think he had a ring until that year with the Red Sox, and he finally pitched well. And before to talk about Kevin Cash and uh, the whole Blake Snell thing, I want to talk about Clayton Kershaw just because multiple, I think three Cy Youngs, he's won an MVP. You know, pitchers don't win MVPs. I know Verlander's done it, he's done it. But it's not every year you have a Shane Bieber-type guy in the conversation like that. Very rare thing to have. I think Clayton Kershaw's career ERA is under like a 2-9, ridiculous numbers. Guy's been doing it since I think like 2007, 2008. Uh, in this World Series or this postseason, 293 ERA with a .91 whip. The guy was phenomenal from start to finish from October 1st till whatever the hell yesterday was. I think yesterday, 27th. I mean, the guy was just awesome. And I think what I liked about this especially was not only did he pitch phenomenally in the World Series in game four or uh, game five he pitched in, um, everyone in baseball around the sport knew. I mean, you saw Fox had that camera on him coming out of the bullpen. You see that moment of just – you know, euphoria. He throws up his hands and he looks up to the sky and like, finally. And if anyone deserves to get a ring in the sport right now, it's Clayton Kershaw for sure. Like I said, the best pitcher of our generation, probably the best pitcher I've ever been able to watch. I think probably you'd say the same thing. Um, up there with the greats, he's going to be in the Hall of Fame, no doubt about it. And I'm super happy for him. I don't want anyone to take away from what happened. I've heard a lot of people, uh, the other guy he draws comparisons to is Verlander. Two Cy Youngs, won an MVP as well. Verlander has his ring and people are going to say, listen, Kershaw got his ring in a 60 game season. You could counter Verlander and say his hitters knew every single pitch that was coming and they won a World Series that year. So in a way, you can you know, you know can kind of cancel out each other there. But uh, I'm just happy for Kershaw, man. I don't care who you're a fan of. I think you have to be happy for Kershaw. You know, He's helped out his community. He's helped out people around the world on top of being one of the best pitchers we've ever seen. So uh, that's something we have to highlight. I also like how you know we saw Clayton Kershaw kind of – I think he was, he was up in the bullpen – Last night when they were up 3-1, I believe it was, whatever. But uh, at no point was he throwing pitches getting ready. I think in the back of Dave Roberts' mind, he was probably thinking, you know, poetic justice if Clayton Kershaw closes out the World Series, finally gets his moment. But I'm glad Dave Roberts kind of came to his senses and realized, look, this guy's been awesome this postseason, finally. Uh, I don't want to ruin his legacy or, you know, his big moment. Uh, one of my big things was I was hoping Dave Roberts wouldn't use him in one of these situations because with a guy like Kershaw, with the decorated career he has, just – Make him do what he's comfortable with. I said this in the last episode. That's how you're going to win, and I'm glad they didn't do something like that. And for all the talk, you know, all the slack we've given to Dave Robert, uh, Dave Roberts just because of the questionable decisions he's made, I think for the most part he managed a great World Series, managed Kershaw well. Kershaw was awesome. And on that front, as a Dodgers fan, you have to be ecstatic, especially going into 2021. Yeah, Kershaw did everything he had to do in order to rewrite his legacy this postseason. And, I mean, I don't – Neutral fan or neutral site, no fans, whatever. I mean, he was facing good teams. Uh, he still had to go out there and pitch. He still had to execute his pitches. Uh, he still had to stay healthy and grind and be in a bubble with the team and be away from his family and stuff. And uh, he did everything that he had to do. And uh, knowing that, ever you know, knowing his struggles from last year and how he's kind of just ran into some weird, you know, situations happening in playoffs, whether it's struggling against the Red Sox in 2018 or the late home run to Matt Adams in 2013 or uh, getting bombed in Houston in 2017 when they knew it was coming. He's just had a lot of unfortunate circumstances. And uh, I think everybody roots for Clayton Kershaw. I don't think he's one of the guys that people like to hate. I think everybody wanted to see him succeed and get that monkey off his back, and he definitely did that. And uh, he was he was their best guy, really, throughout the playoffs. I mean, Bueller was lights out, too, and I'm a huge Walker Bueller guy. But, um, you know, Kershaw was kind of the veteran who anchored them. 
Uh, he won the most pivotal game of the series in game five. He was pitching game ones for him. And uh, I think he really wrote his legacy. And I think people will still remember some of the playoff failures, but getting this one and, you know, who knows, maybe he'll get another one before his career is over. Uh, you're going to see him more of the winner light than, you know, the great pitcher in the regular season who never could get it done in the playoffs. Right. And going into this series, uh, and as we saw the entire time, I think the big thing for the Dodgers was if their bullpen could hold up because obviously they have some arms. They've had some questionable appearances from guys. You know, Blake Trinan's a guy we've talked about on this podcast, especially last week. I know uh, I'm going to blow him out of proportion with how Noah reacted to uh, Dave Roberts bringing him into that game against the Dodgers – or the Braves, excuse me. Um, but you look at some of these guys. I mean, yesterday Alex Wood pitched two innings, three strikeouts. Um, Grotterell was good all series. Uh, Victor Gonzalez is very good. Julio Arias was, you know, I dominant this out. entire postseason. Yeah. Uh, you know, as I said before with Dave Roberts and, you know, how I thought he actually managed a very good postseason for the most part. You saw him use Urias in multiple inning situations. Uh, yesterday, I think he got the last – I think he pitched the last two or three innings. He did it in game seven, if I'm not mistaken, against the Braves. Guy was awesome all year. Urias is a guy we've seen around this Dodgers team for a while, and he's never you know, <coughs> fully become that guy they expected him to. And now all of a sudden you have him getting right. Um, and just in general, the Dodgers bullpen really held up, and I think that was the big difference maker for them just because we knew their lineup, despite facing the best pitching staff in baseball from top to bottom with the Rays, we knew they were going to score runs at some point. And on that note, I want to transition into some of their, you know, the Dodgers' biggest offensive performers – Mookie Betts, we talked about before in the postseason, he had 296, a 378 OBP, um, an 871 or, uh, OPS, excuse me, six stolen bases. That's the big thing. We knew Mookie Betts was going to get big hits. We knew he played great defense, but um, just him getting on base in general, he was always a threat because, you know, he stole bases. His base running was phenomenal all postseason. Such an impact player. Like we said before, he was the guy that they missed. We saw so many good catches he made. He hit the home run yesterday that kind of sealed the deal. Um, you know, when a team, when a team is destined to win something like that, uh, I remember just a personal moment. I remember in 2015, the Mets had to clinch in Cincinnati and they were up big and David Wright, you know, had this injury ridden season. And then he hits a home run to kind of cap off the game. That's kind of when you got the sense that the Mets were going to seal the division. Same thing happened yesterday at Mookie Betts. Uh, they were up two one and then he hits that home run. It's like, all right, yeah, you know, now this team's winning probably the best, if not second best player in baseball. Uh, you get he gets traded to already the best team in baseball, and all of a sudden you realize that this is the piece they were missing the whole time. Uh, he's worth every single penny he's going to get paid these next twelve years with the Dodgers, and I think there's nothing to be said there. And then you look at Corey Seager, unless you had something on Mookie Betts. I was just going to say I'm happy he's out of the division. Yeah. It's so it's so nice to be able to root for him and uh, recognize how great of a player he is because I'm not on the bandwagon that he's the best player in the league, uh, and he's won two World Series, and I'm all about winning, but I still think it's Trout. But he's 1A, 1B with Trout in terms of just skill set and being a complete player. Because and a winner. Of, yeah, there's really no flaw in his game. I mean, sometimes he can be inconsistent with the bat, but at the end of the year, his numbers still look really good. Yeah. And, you know, we obviously know he's a very versatile player who can play even in the infield if you need him to, but he can play left, center, right, play plus defense in every position. He's got a plus arm. And, uh, you know, like you said, wreaks havoc, wreaks havoc on the base pads. And, He's as complete player as they can be, and that was a great trade for LA. Yeah, and the other big name, not the other big name, but the biggest name in the Dodgers lineup this entire postseason was Corey Seager. In the World Series, he had two home runs, five RBIs, uh, hit 400. Through the entire postseason, hit 328, a 425 OBP with an 1171 OPS. Um, the guy was just terrific. He had a huge bounce back year, uh, won the NLCS MVP, won the World Series MVP. He had the Tommy John surgery in the 2018 season, if I'm not mistaken. Comes back in 2019, and he was good, not great. You know, prior to the surgery, we had seen Corey Seager. He was in that group of players, you know, with Baez, Story, Correa, just that young group of just awesome shortstops that were kind of going to take over baseball for the next 10 years, you know. All of a sudden, people start to forget about him just because he has a Tommy John surgery. He's not great in 2019. Uh, and then he comes back in 2020, and he's just awesome all year, like I said. I mean, it. he was – you talk about a Rosarena, the 10 home runs. I still think Corey Seager would be the guy I would want to face last in a postseason, especially just how 2020 went, just with the way. It seemed like every time he got on the box, he was either going to walk or he was going to hit a double down the right field line, something like that. Uh, he played some good shortstop. He's a guy I've been high on for a long time. I really liked him coming up, um, you know, in like 2016, 2017, et cetera. And uh, I'm glad people haven't forgot about him and he's, you know, made his money worth. We know the Dodgers are either going to pay him or someone's going to pay him big in a few years. Are you uh, willing to put Seager in your top 20 guys now in the league? Like see him in that kind of light in terms of position players? Because like before the season, I probably would have had him in like the 30 to 40 range. 
now I kind of see him like if I'm building a team, is he one of the 20 guys that I want first? Because like I really do think that he kind of proved that this postseason. He's still really young. He plays a premium position. He's a left-handed bat, makes a lot of contact, uh, plays pretty good defense. And, you know, like you said, and the, not many players win NLCS and World Series MVP in the right. same year. So. Yeah, and I'm, I have my opinion set. I'm just trying to get some numbers just to make my point even more clear. But like I was saying before, I think that Cordy Seager was already showing how good he could be or how good he already was prior to the surgery. And I think you look at his career before the surgery and after, you know, this guy's always been really good. You know, even when he was a younger player, now he's getting a little bit older. He's obviously still heading to his prime. He's only 26 years old. The guy's not going anywhere. Um, He was one of my guys, you know, back then, one of the best 20, 30 players in baseball, rising star. All of a sudden he does this in a 60 game season. I know it's, it's one thing to say he just had a hot streak and he wrote it out, but to see what he did in the world series, to see what he did in the postseason you know, against a Braves team that was pitching really well against the Tampa Bay team that was, you know, for all intents and purposes, the best pitching staff in baseball from top to bottom, as I said, I would definitely put Corey Seager there because, you know, he's had that one year was kind of an anomaly. It's not easy to come back from Tommy John surgery. I mean, you know, pitchers are the ones who are mostly dealing with Tommy John surgery. It's not all the time you see position players have it, but, uh, you know, being out that long is one thing you really have to, I'm not gonna say learn how to throw again, but you know, you come back from Tommy John surgery, all of a sudden, you know, you're throwing a tennis ball from five feet away. You're working your way back up, let alone getting in the box, starting to hit again for the first time in months, seeing live pitching, you know, adapting to 100 miles per hour, 93 mile per hour sliders like that. The fact that he was able to, you know, overcome that obstacle and get to the point he's at right now, I don't think there's any signs of him slowing down. So um, I think it's definitely fair to say that he's probably, you know, one of the 20, 25 guys you'd want. Uh, not to mention, he's a good looking kid. And big poppy, big poppy attested to that yesterday. He said, "He said, listen, Corey Seager, you have four tools. You're good looking, NLCS MVP, uh, World Series MVP, and now you have a uh, a ring." He said, and "What's next?" LA. Yeah, he said, "What's next for you, man?" And then Corey Seager says, "I'm getting married." So uh, Corey Seager certainly, like I said, he's one of my favorite players. Part of the injury, I'm glad no one forgot about him after this year. Uh, this guy seems like he really has, you know, the world is his right now because he's already on top of the world. The kid's 26 years old. You got a. I'm gonna give you five shortstops. I want you to rank them: Lindor, Story, Bogarts, Seager, and Correa. Can you rank those guys one to five? As I sip water while Noah's asking me a question. Um. Well, one is Lindor. I think that's pretty obvious. Is it obvious? I I, I would take. Lindor I still one think still. I would too. But like his offense, he did. T- his offense took another hit this year. Yeah. I, I I'm not gonna look into the the offense of a player in 60 games there's so many good players elite level players who just kind of you know slacked off this year um cleveland's lineup wasn't particularly great either i think it's it's not easy for a guy to hit that well especially when you don't have guys behind and in front of you um i would take lindor one your next see this is tough i feel like it's you have your established one maybe your two and then all of a sudden it's guys that are that can you know move around or it's a very fluid system uh I like Bogarts a lot. I think Bogarts is a bit underrated, especially playing out in Boston right now, just because they've been, you know, they had a they had a miserable year last year and uh, this year, I guess I should say. Should I call it last year or this year? Because technically the season's over. But um, I do like Bogarts a lot. Trevor Story's a guy that I kind of thought was going to tail off, uh, especially after that hot start when he came up. But he's a guy that's coming on. All of a sudden, it seems like he might be the top dog down there in Colorado, or I should say out west. Um I, st- I don't think I'm ready to put Corey Seager. I think I'd probably still put him four or five just because, like I said, he's he's just coming back from a surgery. This is his first year back. I would go Lindor one. Would you say it's too high to put Bogarts two? No, I wouldn't say that. I, I would, before the I, season, I would have. Yeah, I would. Again, I'm not going to look too much into the 60 game. I think just in general, you have to avoid recency bias. I would go Lindor one. I'd go Bogarts two. Um... See, this is tough. That's a really good question. I mean, would would you put Tatis in that conversation? Not with. Uh, I mean, see, it's tough because so like yes, but he needs to like keep proving it. I think a again, bit. like, like what I said are, with the reasons he buys, it's the same yeah. thing. It's these are the five you know the proven names. Um, my thing with Correa is you know Correa was good this year, had some huge postseason moments. But Correa's been a guy that's been beat up pretty much his entire career, and he's played in postseason, had some big hits. But I don't know if I think I would still take. I think my top three right now would be Lindor, Bogarts, and I think Trevor Story, probably Correa, four, Seager, five. 
And that's just because, like I said with Seager, the same reasons I laid out. I'm not ready to, you know, all of a sudden say he's the best shortstop in baseball, the second shortstop in baseball after this year. But um, in the future, I could totally take him over, you know, most of those guys besides maybe Lindor. What about you? I think I'd do Lindor one, Story two, Bogarts three, Seager four, Correa five. I want to put Seager higher. Right, man, I, I could definitely put him over Bogarts. Story had an amazing year. And I'm trying, like you said, with the recency bias, not to discredit Story because if Story was in the postseason, he could have done the same thing. We don't know. Uh, so I'm going to – I'll say Lindor, Story. But I think there's an argument for Story over Lindor, honestly, now because Lindor, 2019 at a 114 way to runs creative plus this year was 100 flat. So he's kind of been a little bit better than league average offensively and saying he's the best shortstop in baseball with that. It can be a little bit tough, but he's also Francisco Lindor. Uh, so you kind of have to give him the benefit of the doubt. Uh, Seager offensively is as gifted as anybody there. Um, but I think the gloves of Lindor and Story are a lot better. So I think those guys you have to put there. Bogart, Seager, you can kind of go back and forth with. Correa, I like a lot too. Uh, Correa had a 97 way to runs created plus this year. He's very inconsistent. He's been banged up. But I know one thing is when we get to the postseason, I want Correa on my team. Right. Like I just, he's a winner and he can play for me any day. He's hitting walk off after walk off in the postseason. He's never scared of the moment. Uh, he always hits good pitching. You know, Correa is another guy I really like. Um, we'll have to pose that to our listeners. If you guys want to weigh in on that conversation, we'll tweet something about it. Uh, you guys can give us your top five rankings. We'll talk about it on the show next week and stuff because I think it's a really interesting debate. Something we'll have to do over the offseason. Yeah. Can I I want to ask you a question too. Could you imagine an offense with Xander Bogarts and Mookie Betts in it? How good that could be? What what about JD Martinez? Too? Could you could you imagine how good that would be? Or or Jackie Bradley Jr. on a ninety game hitting streak like he had in what was it, like twenty sixteen, something basically like that. Twenty eighteen Red Sox. They, that's they, why they're they unstoppable. That's what I I remember saying that. I was like, this team, like, they don't you know, Evaldi had that gutsy performance, whatever you had Chris Sale. Um, but like, it's not like that team was just coming at you with seven, eight innings from the starters. They were just out mashing everybody. This isn't a 2018 Red Sox podcast. So that team, I hated them because they were so good. Yeah. Um, we've talked enough about the Dodgers. I think we've hit everything we really want to hit right now. Um, I think next it's only fair. We talk about Tampa Bay and we have a huge decision in game six to get into. So as we said, it's very important to highlight and, you know, have a big discussion about Kevin Cash and his decision to pull Blake Snell yesterday. So for those of you who maybe didn't watch the game or need a refresher, basically Blake Snell was dealing. I mean, he was just carving up Dodgers hitters. I think the top three hitters in the Dodgers lineup were 0 for 6 against Snell and his two trips through their lineup. 0 for 6, six strikeouts. They each struck out two times. Um, and this was who? It was Mookie, it was Seager, and um, who was hitting through him? I guess Turner, someone like that. Uh, regardless, I mean, Blake Snell was dealing. Anyone who watched knows this guy was, you know, off his rocker. Five and a third, nine strikeouts, one hit. I think he had nine strikeouts through four innings. The guy was just unbelievable. All of a sudden, I think he gives up a one-out hit to Austin Barnes. Mookie Betts comes up to the plate, and Kevin Cash comes out, and he asks for the ball from Snell. You see Snell scream, what the fuck, something like that. You know, he wasn't happy, and rightfully so, to bring in uh, – it was Nick Anderson, I believe it was, the right-hander who had given up runs in six straight postseason appearances. was facing Mookie Betts, a guy who loves hitting right-handed pitching. I think Tom Verducci pointed out Mookie Betts had a 200 slugging percentage against lefties in 2020. I mean, the guy – a 200 slugging percentage. It's, the guy doesn't hit lefties. That, that's what that says. And, you know, all of a sudden, Mookie hits a double down the line. I believe his runners on second and third. No, I think uh, Austin Barnes might have scored, actually. All of a sudden, it's a 1-1 game. Um, Zanino pass ball, if I'm not mistaken. Whatever happens, Dodgers go up 2-1, I believe. And just like that, Blake Snell is having the game of his life and the biggest game of his life. And all of a sudden, it's taken away. And this this conversation would be different if it was as simple as... Kevin Cash had a lapse in judgment, but I think there's a much deeper element to this, and that's the talk of analytics. So uh, the Tampa Bay Rays are probably the most analytically driven team. Like we said, they have a stable of guys who throw 100 miles per hour. That's what everyone in the Tampa front office has said. Again, this is a bunch. these are a bunch of guys that haven't made a name for themselves until pitching for the Tampa Bay Rays. I mean, kind of just a bunch of nobodies. With all due respect to these guys, they, they were awesome this year. Uh, this is just a team of guys, you know, they take an approach, they look at analytics, they look at, you know, all these advanced sabermetrics to 
make a lot of their decisions. And one of their decisions was taking Blake Snell out. Their philosophy was he shouldn't pitch more than two times through the lineup. He gets through the lineup the second time, even though he's dealing, and Kevin Cash pulls him. This has caused a huge debate just because a lot of people are saying analytics have ruined baseball. I mean, A-Rod was not happy about this at all on the pod, uh, on the post game yesterday. Nobody was. They were saying, look, this kid, you know, you basically ripped his heart out from his chest after pulling him in the biggest game of his life just because of your analytics. My take on the whole thing is without the analytics, the Dodgers aren't in this position. Neither are the Tampa Bay Rays. I think it's ignorant. I think it's unfair for people to say that analytics are ruining baseball because you know most of the successful teams this year are using analytics and all the best teams in baseball right now are using analytics to get them to these points but at the same time there has to be a balance between using analytics and watching the fucking baseball game and realizing what the right decision is versus you know what the wrong decision is and i think in this situation analytics can't really help you decide everything especially in the postseason just because it's a different animal it's a cliche it's something anyone can say but it's true you don't do that in a, in a, you know, a game environment built so much on momentum, a guy like Blake Snell, a guy who's won a Cy Young, who was dealing the way he was, you can't just say, analytics have told us this past season that pitchers are less effective when they pitch through the third time through a lineup. But at that point, you know, it just got me mad. It got everybody mad because this guy's, you know, potentially his career with the Rays was ruined just because of an analytical decision that, you know, some Ivy League students are making down, you know, under the stadium, you know, sitting on their table with their laptops open, looking at numbers, crunching numbers. Uh, I think it's unfair to them. And like I was saying, it brings up this huge debate about analytics. And, you know, that's where I stand on it right now. I assume you have similar sentiments. If you have something to add, go for it. Yeah, I mean, I'm not anti-analytics at all. I think they're very important. I think they're very useful. Um, I think the Dodgers and the Rays are probably the two most analytically driven teams in the league. Which is funny because people are saying on the broadcast <clears> – <throat> The Dodgers won because they use the old school style of no, baseball. They, Did you no, see when Mookie scored? You could see in the background a a iPad with the hot and cold zones of hitters against Nick Anderson in every count. Oh 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 one oh two one. Like it's like it was all of that. You know, you see hot cold zones. You see tendencies. All this stuff. Dave Roberts wasn't saying, "Hey Mookie, you know, lay down a bunt, get the run over yeah, to second yeah. base." You know, if he hits you, lean into it. Whatever, like stupid shit like that. I mean. I don't want to cut you off, but yeah, the Dodgers were also using analytics in a heavy way. You're helping me because I can't really talk yeah. that clear. Yeah. We, we talked about this before the podcast. Yeah. So, um, yeah, no, I'm not against analytics in any way. Um, I think when you get in game, though, you have to have a feel for it. I think I texted you that yesterday. I said, analytics when coming to evaluate players and defensive positioning and what counts to throw what pitches – and Line-ups. how to get the most out of your players, lineups, et cetera, yeah. matchups. Yeah, that's all. It's all great. That's helping teams win. That's why and these Andrew Friedman-led teams are doing well. I mean, Tampa Bay, everybody there is Andrew Friedman's guys because he was there, and now he's with the Dodgers, and he's implemented this way of thinking, and this is what baseball has become, and that's why they're in the position that they are. That's why they're winning. That's why they're succeeding as franchises. Uh, but at the same time, you have to see the game develop in front of you and Blake Snell yesterday was dealing. He had insane stuff. He had Cy Young winning stuff. Uh, it reminded me of 2018 Snell when just the curveball was unhittable. Uh, the changeup going away from righties was really good. The fastball he was putting wherever he wanted. When you have three-plus pitches like that and you're just locating them everywhere, these hitters don't stand a, t- a chance. That's just kind of baseball. You know, good pitching will always beat good hitting uh, when you have that kind of going on. And it's not even the reverse splits with Mookie Betts or – you know, lefty-lefty with Seager. It, it doesn't even matter with any of that stuff. When you have a guy who's still – his pitch count's very low, and he's only gone through the order twice. I know third time around, big deal. I would still let him go until you really see a sign of trouble. I mean, that Austin Barnes bloop single to me wasn't a real sign of trouble. Right. If Mookie Betts comes up the next batter and he slaps one off the wall, then there's a little bit of a warning sign. Okay, you know, let's give him Seager the lefty matchup, and then we'll get him out before he faces Turner. Or so we thought he faced Turner before he left the game with COVID. Uh, and that was a whole thing that we probably should talk I forgot, about. I actually, actually forgot to talk about uh, Justin Turner. We'll get to that uh, after we talk Tampa. But. Yeah, but um, I, I really – I didn't agree with the decision. I'm not going to be A-Rod or any of these other guys saying abolish computers, analytics are ruining the game. No more technology. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's not how I think because I think these teams were there because they used analytics and because they're – uh, proactive teams and they're uh, you know they're they're doing what they have to do but um, 
at the end of the day, and I think Kevin Cash even said this himself, the process, the, the reasoning behind taking Snell out was sound, but you have to just have a feel for the game. And, and bringing in Nick Anderson was, I think, the worst part of it because this guy giving up, I think, runs in six straight six postseason straight. appearances. Going to him was not the right decision there. I mean, it just wasn't. I mean, there's other guys in that bullpen. I would have felt a lot better going to Diego Castillo there personally. Um, if they wanted to bring in a lefty, uh, maybe I don't even know who they'd go to at that point. But, but especially with runners on base on the top of your order, you know, Diego Castillo is a guy you'd want to pitch the seventh, eighth inning just to try to get you to the ninth. But like in a situation that big, the biggest <clears throat> season you've probably been in since what, 2008? Yeah. You know, like something like that. It's you want to go to your best guy there. It's not like you want to. No offense, but you don't want to put it Nick Anderson in that situation, like you said. Um, it just, it's 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 kind of sad, honestly. That's the best way to put it, to do that to a you know a young pitcher, a guy who's, like I said, one of Cy Young, one of the best pitchers in our game. I texted my father. I said, like, this game has some weird Harvey vibes to it. You remember Harvey in uh, yeah. game five against the Royals where this guy's dealing all of a sudden, you have to make a huge decision. And, you know, we saw it on the opposite side of the spectrum. Terry Collins leaves and Matt Harvey too long which I think I'm okay with just because of how good Harvey was doing, whatever. I think he should have been pulled early. I don't want to talk about that, whatever. I was like, you know, this has kind of the similar atmosphere. Blake Snell's proven pitcher is dealing. He's going crazy. Uh, he's all the momentum. They're up a run. It seems like everything's falling into the race place right now. All of a sudden, this one moment by a manager changes their entire season, changes, you know, the history of baseball. And they were saying this on the broadcast this is something that's going to be talked about for a long, long, long time. This that's where I crossed the line, though. That's where I draw yeah, the line. Yeah. Because the race scored one run, yeah. and they weren't going to win that game with one run. Yeah. It wasn't going to end one nothing. And their bats weren't even good. They weren't getting guys on base. No, no. It was it was uncompetitive after the Rosarena home run. And that was pretty much what the Tampa Bay offense was. It was a Rosarena, and maybe a second guy randomly gets hot for a night, like a Kiermaier. Yeah. But, yeah, no, they weren't going to win anyway. It shouldn't be talked about like that. Yeah. it's Unfortunately, it's going to be talked about just because – it's a dramatic moment. It's, you know, very controversial decision. I think you could also look at the way Kevin Cash was talking post-game. And I feel like a manager that does something like that, you it seems like he would kind of wear whatever. You could tell that Kevin Cash, even what he was saying, he was saying we're instead of I at first. And you could tell that wasn't just his decision. I think if Kevin Cash is in that situation and, you know, Tampa's front office trusts him to make decisions. He's an awesome manager, probably the manager of the year this year you would assume that, you know, most of these decisions are going to be put on him. But A-Rod was saying it. People around baseball have said it. You know, baseball's in a position right now where managers aren't necessarily trusted to make these decisions. I don't think this is a decision that Kevin Cash thought of with his bench coach, you know, in the middle of the sixth inning yesterday. No I think I think there's no shot. A guy as smart as Kevin Cash is who knows the game, who's played matchups so well all season, I don't think – He's looking at this situation as saying, you know what, I'm going to take out my ace to get Nick Anderson. And I think this 100% came from the front office. And even even if, look, you know, Kevin Cash wasn't, I, I'm not sure he was dead set against it, but I don't think he has the power to kind of veto that decision and decide to keep Blake Snell, which is sad because I've said this a million times. I think you have to let managers do their job. I don't like this style of baseball where managers half the time are babysitters. I've mm -hmm. said that about Boone before, you know, Boone will go out of the dugout and he'll yell at the umpire and do whatever. But at the same time, you know, you have guys down in the bunker, wherever the hell you want to have them, you know, sitting in the dugout on their computers, looking at matchups and saying, you know, J.A. Hat pitched better against this guy in 2014, whatever, something like that. Um, I think it's just, it's kind of, I don't want to say it's like ruining the integrity of baseball, but you're paying a guy like Kevin Cash, to do stuff like this. And then when he's not given the opportunity to make these decisions, you know, what's the point of getting a manager? At what point do you not just say, all right, my GM and the president of baseball operations, these guys are going to run out our lineups. They're going to decide, and we're going to have a player manager or something stupid like that. So, um, you know, it just, baseball is kind of in a weird spot with that. And I don't want to contradict myself. I've been on the air on radio and on the podcast before saying that I think, what the Yankees did, I don't know if I necessarily agree with this. They kind of tried to play a style of baseball. They didn't play, you know, playing these matchups, taking out Debbie Garcia in that game, you know, after one inning. I said, listen, these teams have to play to their identities in the postseason. The Rays have to play their matchups. They have to bring in guys in weird spots, use an opener, pitch glass now one time through the order like he has done uh, throughout this postseason, you know, stuff like that, and it works for them. But I think in this situation, you have to, you know, you have to give a pass and realize that in the postseason, like you said, you nailed it. Um 
you have to have a feel for the game. And I don't think they had a feel for the game. I don't know if you have anything more to say about Kevin Cash. If not, uh, I think we have to talk about Snell's future in Tampa because, you know, we, we don't know how he reacted. We, we saw him talk in the post-game conference yesterday, and he said – he was heartbroken. You could tell. He said, look, man, I trusted myself. I was dealing. I mean, he he sounded – I'm not going to say he sounded selfish. He was supposed to sound selfish because of how well he pitched. He said, look, man, I was dealing. He literally said, like, I was carving through that Dodgers lineup. None of those guys could touch me. Struck out Mookie twice. And Mookie Betts said when he was interviewed after the celebration, he said – I don't know what they decided. I don't know why they decided that, but I'm glad they did because he said, at least when I faced Nick Anderson, I had a chance to hit him. I mean, you know, not only did Snell have these guys off balance, they weren't going to touch him. And, you know, this is such a monumental thing for a player in Blake Snell's part of his career. You really wonder if he's going to come back to the Rays next year, a team that's expected to compete again, most likely. Is he going to trust Kevin Cash in the front office? To that, I really don't know the answer to right now. That I don't know. Uh, I doubt he'll demand a trade. It's just not really something I see him doing, especially just signing an extension two years ago. But when he has free agency, he's going to have this in his mind. No doubt. I don't think he's going to be a Tampa Bay for his career. It's going to be a similar thing to Price where eventually he'll get traded. I doubt he'll force his way out of there, but they'll probably have a down year and they're going to do their thing where they trade their high salary players and he's going to be out of there. Um I think this is definitely going to bother him, though. It's some, it's, he's going to be thinking about this for a few weeks. He'll probably get over it. Uh, he's, he's been there forever. I'm sure he's a good relationship with most of the people in the organization, and uh, he might get over it, but it stinks for now, and it's definitely something to watch in the future. Yes, yeah, so um, with the Tampa Bay Rays in general, will they be back in 2021? No. You know, twenty This 2020 season was built for them just because, you know, they could pitch. They got timely hits, but – a lot of their wins came from just having such a strong and deep pitching rotation, a pitching staff and as a whole that it really benefited them. And they kind of went through the playoffs in a neutral, you know, neutral um, field, excuse me. I've said this before. If this race team is playing at Yankee stadium, I still think this race team was probably better than the Yankees. The Yankees just came out flat and all credit in the world to the race for beating them. I still think, you know, the landscape of this postseason is different if you're facing the Yankees at home in game two, three, four, whatever, with 45,000 angry New Yorkers screaming at you, screaming at Randy Rosarena in right field, heckling Kevin Kiermaier in center, et cetera. Um, and putting all bias aside, you just said Tampa Bay Rays aren't back next year. Well, they'll be back in the playoffs, and they've got a lot of talent, and their organizations run very well top to bottom. Uh, I think they'll definitely be back in the playoffs. I'm not sure what the playoff format's going to be next year yet, but I'd assume they're going to be one of the five or six teams that gets there. Uh, but I don't think they're going to be in the World Series again. I, I just I don't I don't know if they're going to be able to replicate the pitching that they were able to re- have this year. Uh, and granted, I mean, really, they barely got there when you think about it. They went from three zero to three three, and they got there based on just Randy and Rosarena pretty much right. carrying the offense. But if they don't get a Barry Bonds like performance from Randy and Rosarena, I'm not sure where the rest of their offense is coming from. I mean, they had a lot of guys who don't hit much at all step up for them in this postseason. Like Kiermaier getting big hits and hitting big home runs, and Zanino hitting four home runs at the bottom of the order. Uh, guys like Margot having big power surges when they didn't hit any home runs in the regular season. They had a lot break right for them. Uh, so I don't think they're going to be back in the World Series. I just every year in baseball, there's there's usually change. It's not like one of these. It's not like where there's a lot of parity in the sport. I feel like there's a new World Series winner almost every year, and there's new teams in there besides the Dodgers recently or the Astros. It's kind of rare where you get these teams who get back there. And, um, you know, the Yankees are going to be stronger, you think. And there's going to be other teams in the other divisions that are going to be stronger. And there's not going to be neutral site. And uh, there's going to be more room for injury to big players on their team. You know, they, they had their three starters in the playoffs. They had them healthy pretty much all year. Um, so I don't know if they're going to be – I don't. I wouldn't pick them to come out of the American League, but – at the same time, they're still going to be a very competitive team, and uh, we can't take it for granted. And they deserve a lot of credit for the run that they got on. Yeah, and I think one thing to look at when asking this question, will the Tampa Bay Rays be back? We know that this team is built on pitching. You know, the spine of this team is just getting innings out of guys, openers, you know, these guys pitching, you know, four or five innings from your bullpen, et cetera. Um, I think one important aspect to look at is a lot of these teams that are built on pitching that, you know, make a deep playoff run, you see their arms. A lot of these guys get tired the next season, you know, whether they break down and get hurt or, you know, their numbers are been inflated just because of how far they pitch in the postseason. I don't think that's necessarily a factor this year just because these guys are pitching, you know, granted they're pitching, they're played, you know, every day for, you know, four or five days to a week straight. 
I don't think these arms are necessarily going to be as taxed, especially considering they haven't played close to the amount of games they would have played in a 162 game plus World Series run. They, they started up. They did look gassed though. Yeah, you watched yeah, those guys. Yeah. Pete Fairbanks, he looked yeah. gassed yesterday. Yeah. And that's the thing. The problem with the way that this team is run is that you're expected, like Pete Fairbanks, to throw 100 and then you know throw 20, 25 pitches and be ready another day or two. You know that's going to take a, a toll on you. And then, like you said, it's this Tampa Bay Rays team. We said on our podcast when we, you know, did our huge postseason preview, this Rays team does not have a good lineup. They, they really don't. I remember looking at the numbers. It was, you know, you have seven or eight, like seven to eight, six to 700 OPS players, and then like one or two guys who can, you know, occasionally hit a home run and walk like that. Uh, at some point, you got to imagine they're going to regress. I mean, guys like Kiermaier aren't going to, get huge hits through a 162-game season. Rosarena's not going to be on the pace hitting 10 home runs in the postseason like he did this year. Uh, he could. You know, maybe Randy Rosarena is all of a sudden the next Ted Williams. But um, I think what you said is is true, that they're definitely going to be in the postseason just because that pitching staff alone, assuming they're all healthy, you're going to at least get pitched to a wild card game or the wild card series, we should say now. It's still weird to think about. Um, and talking about pitching, we have here what could have helped the Rays – it's obvious to point out the fact that, you know, their lineup wasn't great. They scored one run in game six. They needed to score more than one run to win. We knew that was obvious going in. But if you look at some of the starts they got from their guys, Glasnow and Morton in the World Series, Glasnow got roughed up in his start. Morton, who was, you know, that Morton-Bueller matchup uh, on Friday, I think that was game three, if I'm not mistaken. That was a really hyped up matchup because these are two postseason pitchers who have a, a pretty big track record or pretty great track record of pitching phenomenally in postseason. I think both of these guys were two, five to two seven ERA pitchers in postseason games. And, you know, this Bueller Morton matchup we had in game three, uh, JP Morosi said it's potentially the best pitching matchup we've had in a world series since like 2001. Like we've never had statistically, we've never had this good of a matchup. And then Morton gets roughed up, gives up four or five runs and Bueller pitches well. So, well, I think it's easy to say that, Tampa had a lack of offensive production in the World Series. I think it's also fair to say that for a team that's built on their pitching, uh, two of their best starting pitchers really didn't hold up their end of the bargain. It sucks for Blake Snell because, you know, he did that. Um, how do you feel about Glass now? Because he's a guy we talk about a lot, but I think we've seen a lot in the postseason. You know, he had his good starts, but at the same time, we've also seen him be this very average guy who throws 100 gets in the zone, and aside, besides that, he gets roughed up a little bit. I think that his his World Series performance, probably the biggest game of his career, was pretty underwhelming. I don't think he's the next Garrett Cole, but I think he's got tremendous stuff, yeah. and I kill to have him as my second or third guy in the Yankees. Um, I, I I don't know if I'd really change my stance on him too, too much. He's still young. Uh, he's probably going to battle some injury concerns. He has in the past, and he's a big dude. Uh, that could definitely happen. But when he's out there, I think you have to feel pretty good about having him on your team. But yeah. I don't really have too much on him. So just to conclude our you know, our Tampa Bay talk, uh, a couple guys that Tampa will be losing in free agency, Aaron Loop, Mike Zanino. Um, one guy they will not be losing is Randy Rosarena. Where does Randy Rosarena's career go from here? Because he is, simply put, he was a phenomenon this postseason. Um People do this all the time, and I don't think Randy Rosarena is going to come back and hit 56 home runs in 2021 in a full season. But are you buying the Randy hype, or do you think he's going to kind of just come back to that? You know, he, he was pretty much a nobody when he was in St. Louis. You know, Tampa does that thing that they do with everybody. Where they see value out of this guy. They grab him all of a sudden, he becomes a star. Um, how are you projecting Randy's next few years uh, to go? I think he's a 30 and 100 and 290 hitter. I mean, the bat that he had at the end of game four, uh, to get Brett Phillips to the plate. I don't know if you saw that at that, but just the plate discipline that he had and how locked in he looked. He looked mad that he walked. It really reminded me of, like, Barry Bonds. Like, yeah. this is, like, really what we're dealing with here. Um, he scares the hell out of me as a Yankee fan. I know he's going to torture us. He's got tremendous talent. Uh, I'm not necessarily buying him as Mike Trout because that's pretty much how he's playing as, like, the best player in the sport. But I think you're looking at a future all-star, no doubt about it, uh, probably one of the top – 30 guys in the league at some point. He could definitely be. I mean, right now he's playing like that even more. He had one of the best postseasons of all time. Uh, so I'm buying the hype. I'm excited to see how he develops as a player and if he can really reach full potential because we've seen what he looks like right now, and it's it's scary. Yep. 
Uh, last thing I want to talk about, just from the World Series in general, Justin Turner was pulled yesterday in the middle of the game for for a while for reasons unknown. Right, all of a sudden the Dodgers win the World Series. We figured we'd see Turner come out and celebrate. You know, maybe limping or something like that. Maybe you know, like you know, like had a strained oblique. You know, one of those whatever baseball injuries. And as they're celebrating, the players are around hugging their wives, their children are coming out, handing out the shirts, et cetera, et cetera. We hear that Justin Turner tested positive for COVID-19 and was thus pulled from the game. What happened was he took a test earlier that morning or that afternoon, if I'm not mistaken, and the results came back inconclusive. So they sent his test to a lab, however this process works. Uh, I don't speak for no, but I'm certainly not a doctor. I don't work for the CDC. I don't think he does either. I do, I do um, actually. Do you? Oh, okay, yeah. gotcha. Is it an internship or is that like a full-time it's position? paid intern. Yeah. Wow, okay, good for you. Yeah, I'm doing one at, uh, at Google. but uh, Gotcha. No. Um, so Justin Turner tests positive. He's pulled. And all of a sudden, we see these players out there. They're celebrating right before they went down to the field to start – the full ceremony for the Dodgers. They go in the studio to Kevin Burkhart and he says, before we send you out, we have breaking news. Justin Turner has tested positive for COVID-19. Thus the reason he's removed, et cetera, you know, all this stuff. And it was weird because no one acknowledged it on the field. I think it makes sense to just, you know, let the Dodgers have their moment, despite all this craziness. You don't want to Mookie Betts wins his second world series. He's an MVP. Corey Seager just had, you know, the best stretch of games of his lifetime. Dave Roberts got over the hump. Clayton Kershaw got over the hump. You don't want to ruin it all with, you know, your teammate just tested positive for coronavirus. 2020 for you. Yeah. And it was, I shit you not, it was the maybe the weirdest situation I've ever seen on a baseball field just because people at home knew that something wild was going on. Rob Manford starts getting booed when he introduces the Dodgers and he celebrates their achievement. What was wrong with him? We, I honestly thought that people said there were three things. People said, one, the booze got to him so much that he became emotional. The way he was talking did not sound like he was holding back tears. So I think that theory is out the door. Two, people said that, and reporters who were at the field said that there was like a lot of echoing in the stadium. So he was trying to speak at his regular pace, but he also was hearing the words through the PA system and then saying in real time whatever he heard, like whenever he heard his words on the PA system conclude, created delay. And the third thing, you know, I don't want to be irresponsible about this, but it honestly sounded like he had like a stroke or he was in the midst of some type of episode, like a, you know, a serious health episode because the way he was slurring his words, he looked pale as a ghost. You know, it wasn't a good situation. And I, at first I was joking around. I think I tweeted, I was like, ha, 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 Rob Manford getting booed. And this was, you know, before he was fine. And all of a sudden, and I'm worried about the guy. He's not a popular figure in baseball. We could tell that by the booze. And, you know, something, something happened. And on top of all of that, as crazy as it sounds, Justin Turner, the players are celebrating. Justin Turner then comes out onto the field to take a picture with the team. Everyone in the world knowing that he had a positive coronavirus test. And then not only is he out on the team with the team taking a picture, you'd figure, all right, you have the Dodgers standing like this, a typical championship photo. You'd have Justin Turner in front of all the guys laying down like this, whatever. No, he's sitting next to Dave Roberts, you know, one of the older guys of the organization, obviously, of the guys in the field. You know, he's not a 28-year-old guy in the shape of his life. Justin Turner pops his mask off for the picture. Dave Roberts pops his mask off for the picture. You guys can't see me, you know. We're sitting about a foot apart. That's probably how far apart um, Dave Roberts and Justin Turner were. And this is being broadcasted on, you know, Fox Television Network, one of the biggest networks in America. The World Series being broadcasted around the world. <coughs> and for a league that's done great handling the coronavirus and, you know, the many outbreaks that have happened, you got to ask questions. How the hell was Justin Turner let back out, let back out there? It, what <coughs> happened was it seems as though he was told to isolate, you know, follow the guidelines uh, directed by the CDC and MLB. And it seems like, he disregarded them and he went out. You got to realize this guy won a World Series. It's un- I'm not just unfair because this is something we have to take very seriously. You want to let that guy celebrate with his teammates, especially if he feels fine. But at the same time, not only is this happening, just the Dodgers and the Rays in the ballpark. This is happening on national television. It's yeah. it's a bad situation. <clears throat> I think right now Rob Manfred and the MLB are launching an investigation into this whole Justin Turner situation. I don't want to comment on it really until we know it. The full investigation is if it was actually a positive, it's not a false positive too. <clears throat> but um, right now, it's a bad look. I mean, I think 
only the Dodgers could really make them winning a World Series not the main headline from a big game like that last night. That's Mets. what everybody's talking about. But the about. Mets don't win big games. Oh, the Mets could, too. Could yeah. you imagine that, like, a Wilpon thing? Like, Jeff Wilpon tested positive yeah, and went out like, and, like, licked players. the trophy. Yeah, and, like, just something yeah, Like stupid. the Rudy Gobert with the mics. <laughs> um, yeah, no, it was a crazy, crazy thing to watch. I'm not going to speak for Justin Turner, but no matter what the situation was, I would never want to be the one to be responsible for getting somebody sick or, God forbid, passing away because of my stupidity. I would just never want that attached to me. Um, I feel like, you know, you win a World Series, but you still have to go put health first and safety first because that's kind of been the mantra of the season. And that should really be the mantra for everybody's life is we got to make sure everybody's safe first and protected. Um, I mean, you know, you play the percentages, Turner's probably going to be fine. But and I bet, you, honestly, you never I bet know. everybody in that field's probably going to be fine, yeah, but, but you, you don't know. It's such a bad look. Yeah, like, but it's like – but also the thing is I feel like, you know – for all these players that had their wives and their children out on the field, don't you think you would at least see somebody like, dude, stay the fuck away from me? Like, it yeah. seemed like no, then nobody cared. It honestly seemed like either no one cared or no one knew. I don't know if. Do you think Dave Roberts heard and told everybody that they're taking out Turner because he tested positive? Like, I don't know if the players knew. I it's, think it's he just, said that he knew that he had to get him out of the game. Yeah. So he, you know, we, we knew he pulled the game because of, you know, he didn't pull Justin Turner by chance, you know. He knew, but I'm wondering if he told his players because it didn't seem like any of his players cared. I mean, Justin Turner takes off his mask and is sitting next to Dave Roberts, and you know, baseball is not the biggest sport. If this happened in the NBA, if you know, let's say um, <coughs> it's hard to compare someone to Justin Turner on the Lakers because no one on the Lakers no, is good. good. Besides, yeah. And let's say like KCP, let's say Rajon Rondo KCP test positive and he comes out and then he's sitting next to LeBron, Jeannie Buss, and all these people without his mask on, you know, this would be talked about nonstop. Stephen A's talking about this. Max Kellerman's talking well, about LeBron this. LeBron did it, would ruin his legacy. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. The uh, so, LeBron so. sexuals would have something else to say about that, but we're not going to talk about that too much anymore, just because again, we don't have the details. Well, so we don't want to get political here. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's, this isn't our place to talk. It's not. We'll, it wasn't Justin. It wasn't right for Justin Turner to stay safe. He need or for him to risk the health of other people. Uh, didn't seem like any people cared, so maybe we don't, we shouldn't have to comment on that. It's their decision at the end of the day, but uh, we just hope everyone's fine, and we hope this situation can be resolved quickly. Final part of this episode, we're going to jump into some preliminary talks about upcoming free agents this offseason. Concluding this episode and this first season of the Baseball in the Burrows podcast, we're just going to run through some of the biggest names of this free agent class, uh, as well as, you know, just some other guys that are going to probably be impact players to a certain degree. You know, these aren't your George Springers of the world, but these are guys who are going to impact the ball club. Um, we're not going to go into numbers, contracts, years. Uh, suitors. Yeah, suitors, destinations, you know, all that stuff. We're going to save that for next week's episode. We're going to kick off the new season of baseball in the boroughs with all of our off-season talk. Um, but we figured just to get you guys prepared for next week, we're going to go through the list of – Current free agents or guys that are becoming free agents now that the 2020 season has concluded. So uh, this isn't in full order. Don't be offended if you're some huge Trevor Bauer fan and he's not the number one guy on the uh, on the offseason uh, outlook for these free agents. At the top of the list, obviously, we have George Springer, um, with Trevor Bauer, JT Realmuto, Marcelo Zuna, um, Marcus Stroman, DJ LeMayhew, Michael Brantley, Marcus Simeon, Liam Hendricks, Justin Turner, Nelson Cruz and Kirby Yates. Those are the big, I didn't even count how many guys are 10 or so, 10, 12 guys. Um, We're looking at this as we're going to get to the rest of the list. I mean, you have your, uh, you have your very, very good players, you know, borderline, if not elite players. Um, Some interesting situations, obviously with Bauer, Real Muto regarding, you know, age, the amount of money they want and Bauer kind of just having the first elite year of his career. Uh, so I think the way these numbers and th- these contracts are going to play out is very interesting. Again, we don't want to dive too much into this, but I don't want to say that there's an absolute ringer. There's no, you know, Bryce Harper, Aaron Judge, you know, Mookie Betts in free agency this year, but there's a lot of really good players. And uh, as we get down the rest of the list, I'm going to read the rest of the guys. We have a lot of pitchers and, you know, role players that are probably going to be parts of some contenders going into 2021. We have Blake Trinan, Jackie Bradley Jr., uh, Andrelton Simmons, Alex Colome, Masiro Tanaka, Shane Green, Mike Miner, Robbie Ray, Jake Odorizzi, James Paxton, Jose Quintana, Tommy Lastella, Didi Gregorius is a name that we probably could have had higher up there, Zach Britton, 
Um, potentially could become a free agent, if I'm not mistaken. He has what, like a, a player so option. The Yankees have a two-year option on him. They have to pick up the two-year option. And if not, he can opt out. Gotcha. Okay. Yeah, so Zach Britton's one of those guys, potentially keep he, it on him. He'd be higher up, yeah. Right, and Kevin Gossman. So as I was saying, I mean, you look at some of these names, you know, you're not going to bring in a Mike Miner, Robbie Ray, Jake Odorizzi, Jose Quintana. You're not going to bring in one of these guys and have him your one or two in your rotation. He's not going to give you, you know, a three-year season, have an all-star appearance. But these are guys that a lot of teams in particular can just plug in as a four or five just to give them some stability. Innings uh, eaters. Innings eaters. Guys. Clubhouse so guys. That's kind of, that's Whole kind of, segment featuring Shane Smith. That, that's, uh, the, this, that. that's the mantra of this free agent class. Yeah. Is it? But, I mean, you know, we joke about it because none of these guys, like I said, are going to, you know – win you 20 games and pitch to a 2-5 ERA. But plenty of teams, including our teams, could take a lot of these guys and just plug them in, give them stable innings, you know, give them six innings, three, four runs, whatever, just keep them in ballgames. Uh, so, you know, as much as we want to talk about those big guys, I think these names here specifically are, you know, really going to be impactful to teams. Uh, what are your just kind of overarching thoughts on the top guys in this free agency class? Yeah, to me there's five guys who could get – upwards of $100 million. I, I only see those five guys as being able to accomplish that. That's Springer, Bauer, Ramudo, Ozuna, and LeMahieu. I think those would be the only five guys who could see $100 million contracts. I'm guessing that LeMahieu will be more in the four-year $80 million range. Um, I'm guessing that Ozuna probably will I said not no. I said no numbers. And uh, we're not going to work now. That's my favorite thing. He's like, had to betray me. This, me and Noah, quickly to cut him off just to explain to you guys, me and Noah could have made this episode about free agents also, but – we have so much fun doing this. I remember last year I was saying, you know, like this is honestly the best part of baseball, just predicting where these guys are going to land and then seeing where they land. It's the best part. So we want to dedicate an entire episode to this next week, which is why we don't want to dive too yeah. much into the talks. Yeah, no, I'll stop. But those were, those, I'm just starting to say that there's really five, if you want, I don't even want to call them elite guys. They're very good guys Yeah. at the top of the free agent. There's like you said, there's no elite. There's no Machado Harper of 2018. There's no Cole of last year. Strasburg, even, guys, yeah. right? But I think it's deeper than those classes. I think mm-hmm. like goes yeah. deep, you know, 25 guys that can impact the club in a positive way and will be big parts or not big, but, you know, important parts of championship caliber teams. Uh, so we'll get into all the possible suitors. We'll kind of group them, what teams need. We'll probably go through every team, I think, and kind of address like what their weaknesses and their strengths are and uh, how these guys could possibly fit in. But I think, uh, you know, Tyler's changed his Twitter name to t- Tyler George Springer Smith. So get ready for a bunch of, Mets need a right-handed hitting center fielder talk. That's that's coming. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, real quick, I'm just going to, with the five or six guys that Noah mentioned, just a quick outline. George Springer, 31 years old, started off awfully for the Houston Astros this year. He was my MVP pick just because of, you know, all the asterisk talk, all the cheating talk. I think he was going to come out in a big way. He did play really well last year. Uh, and in 2019, the guy was phenomenal. He posted, like, uh, I think he was like a 7-3 war, something like that. Guy's a winner. Um, he's going to play center field pretty effectively for a couple more years, and then I think he fits that DH spot really well. Trevor Bauer, we've talked about him before. As good as he was in the 60-game sprint and in his start against the Braves, he's an interesting situation. We'll get into more just because, like I said, he's had one good year. He's a personality. Well, I'm going to say two. Yeah. 2018, he was very good, too. Yeah, but, I mean, like, I'm talking, like, in terms of, like, free agency money, like, he's had one of those elite years. Like, got to give his guy out of the hell he wants. Yeah. But, yeah, you're right. He's had, he's had two good years. JT Real Muto, best catcher in baseball, pretty obvious. He's been big for Philly the past two years. Interesting with him is we've heard he wants a ludicrous amount of money, which he's probably not going to get. We've heard something in the two hundred million range. He's a Boris guy, so yes. you know that he's going to be dragged out. Yeah. Uh, Ramudo at earliest will sign January first. Yeah, I mean, I mean, I mean really. I remember in twenty eighteen, I mean, guys, guys were signing like a day before the season started. It was ridiculous. I don't think it's going to happen, but um, he's got a bad hip. Yeah, he's got a bad hip. He's older too. This bat. isn't this isn't a 27, 28 year old guy who can get eight million or eight years, excuse me, and you know be effective for all those years. It's Whatever the worst he gets, aging position right, to a baseball right. catcher's age worse than anybody. He'll be playing first base in three years, something like that. Yeah, really. Um, I mean, Marcelo Zuna, a guy that I think we might have to change this to the Marcelo Zuna podcast, just because me and Noah you've salivated over this guy in episodes before. Um, pay that man. Pay that man. Huge stick was awesome for the Braves. Nothing to talk about. Uh, DJ. I would let Noah talk about this, but just because we're being brief, I mean, this is a guy, if you want a professional hitter, a professional player, good fielder, can play 13 different positions at once, you take DJ LeMahieu. The impact's winning, awesome player. Uh, Michael Brantley, just a stick you could plug into the bat, doesn't play great defense, good lefty hitter, professional. And then 
Last guy, Marcus Stroman's a little bit interesting just because He's interesting. he was awesome in 2019. Then he comes to the Mets and he was, you know, slightly above average, like a 3.7, 3.8 ERA pitcher. That's what he is. 2020, he opted out. Um, big personality. You know, wherever he's going to go, he's going to talk about how excited he is to pitch there, whatever. He's going to do his, you know, his shoulder shrugs off the mound. Um, I don't suspect he's going to get a huge amount of money, obviously, but uh, he's going to help a team wherever he goes. I'm not going to talk about, you know, what the hell Nelson Cruz, Kirby Yates, Blake Trine are going to do. That's, you know, not worth the the talk at this point. But um, me and Noah have done this before, several episodes, where we thank you guys for following us to this point. This is the first season of Baseball in the Burrows concluded. Kind of funny how it ended on 31 episodes. It's an episode a day for an entire month for those of you who are really bored. Um, joking aside, first season of Baseball in the Burrows is done. It kind of encapsulates just the 2020 season, all the craziness in general. And starting next week, we're going to launch a small redesign to our logos on Twitter, on Instagram, our podcast accounts logo. And we're going to start talking about the 2021 season just like that. So uh, we appreciate you guys listening to this episode. Um, We hope you guys stay safe. And we hope you're looking forward to a lot more baseball coverage because in the future, me and Noah are going to be here every week talking about a bunch of shit. Noah, anything to say to conclude this episode? Thank you for sticking with us for all this time. Thank you for sticking through this episode if you're listening at this point with my scratchy voice. And uh, we'll see you next week. Looking forward to free and All right, guys. See you next week. Have a good one. Remember, our socials are at BATBpod. Noah is at Noah Broderick 20, and I am at T Smith Sports. Thank you for listening.